Am I working? Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Tom. Had a little trouble with the earlier service. Well, that's, I, I'd like to get started this morning by asking a question, taking a little poll. Among all of us here this morning, how many of you would say that this is your most favorite time of year? January 23rd, thereabouts. Your most favorite time of year. Uh, not. We had two people in the first service who said that. There's something sadly wrong with those people. For all you people, you normal people, I am right with you. I hate this time of year and I admit it. I mean, we had Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving ran into Christmas, and you have the Christmas, the holiday, and the tree, and the music, and the food, and the parties, and all the rest, and then you have, that sort of runs itself into New Year's, and then, bam, it's all done, and now that's all like a month in the rearview mirror, and we look back, and yeah, it's all done, now we're just sort of going along. I don't know about you, but where I work, after New Year's, you don't get another holiday until Memorial Day. How depressing is that? And then all those great Christmas presents you got at Christmas, the luster is kind of worn off of those a little bit. Discovered that that Snuggie you got is really just a bathrobe you wear backwards. <laughs> Your chia pet's gone bald. Despite the claims to the contrary by that creepy guy on your TV at 3 o'clock in the morning, you have discovered that there are actually far less than 1,001 uses for a sham wow. (laughs) And then last week, Neil had to stand up here and bring up New Year's resolutions. Thanks a lot. I don't know about you, but I blew those like two days after New Year's. I've pretty much come to the conclusion that I have about as much self-control and self-discipline as Cookie Monster. (laughs) I think what I hate most about this time of year is it's cold and it's dark. Did you notice this morning a little cold? It's cold and it's cold and it's dark. I wake up in the morning, it's dark. I go to work, I look out the window, all of a sudden it's dark again. I leave and it's cold and it's dark. I go home, it's cold and it's dark. I go to, the bed, go to bed, it's cold and it's dark. I wake up the next morning again, it's cold and it's dark. <laughs> Sometimes, I don't know about you, but on those cold, dark mornings, especially this week, like when it was cold and dark and snowing, I just want to stay in bed. I just don't want to deal with the cold and the dark, and I just don't want to deal with life. I just say to myself, I just want to stay in bed. It's warm in here. Everything's good right here. <laughs> but we don't. And sometimes as followers of Jesus Christ, I think we kind of run into the same idea sometimes. <clears throat> Look at this world. We watch the news. We read our newspapers. Go on the internet. seems like a cold, dark place sometimes. Famine and crime and war, assassinations. seems just like a cold, dark world. And sometimes there just doesn't seem to be anything we feel like we can do about it. We come to church on Sunday and we talk about changing the world. But I like to ask, do we really believe that Christians can change the world? We talk about being world changers, but do we really, in our heart of hearts, do we really believe that Christians can change the world? I think it's an important question. One I'd like to answer by taking a step back about 2,000 years. Galatians 4.4, Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to redeem mankind. 
And the world that Jesus entered at that time was the world of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was a dark, dirty, smelly, cruel, evil place where corruption and violence were widespread. Human life was cheap. Immorality was rampant. And life itself was often brutal and short. Average lifespan in the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus Christ was 35 years. And Jesus' coming into this dark world was foretold by the prophet Isaiah years before. Matthew quotes Isaiah in his gospel. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. This contrast between darkness of the world and the light of God, the light of Christ, is found all through the Bible. In the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, it says that darkness was over the earth and God said, let there be light. In the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, John tells us that there will be no sun in the New Jerusalem, the city of the New Jerusalem, because God will give it his light. Jesus refers to himself as light. John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's a little disconcerting if you really think about it for a second. As long as I am in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. Well, does that mean that when he left this world, he took the light with him? Does that mean that this world is really a dark place and we can't change it? Not at all. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. I am the light of the world, he says. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So while Jesus walked the earth, he was the light of the world. And he remains the light of the world, but he promised to his followers that he would give them his light. In other words, we reflect the light of Jesus in this world. That's why Jesus said to his followers on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. So Jesus came, he ministered, he lived, he was crucified, dead, buried, raised again ascended into heaven and left this world and left his followers. And there they were, the light of the world, a handful of people among millions in the Roman Empire. The followers, the followers of a poor, uneducated Jewish carpenter turned itinerant rabbi whose leaders, whose leaders were described in Acts chapter 4 as unschooled and ordinary men. They had no political power, no military power, and no meaningful financial endowment. And then to make matters worse, the Emperor Nero had to find somebody to blame for the Great Rome Fire of A.D. 64, and he blamed the Christians. So he began to persecute them. Some he murdered outright. Some he tortured. Some he threw to wild animals. Some he crucified. And in a sick, ironic twist to their status as the light of the world, some he had covered with pitch and lit on fire to light Emperor Nero's gardens. It seemed like the light of the world was being eclipsed by darkness. These early believers needed help, and they needed a plan, and they needed it fast. This is what the Apostle Peter wrote to them. It's on page 1029 of your pew Bibles. It's also on your handout in your uh, bulletin. This is what Peter wrote. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in the case where they speak against you as those who do evil, they may 
by observing your good works, glorify God on a day of, in a day of visitation. See what Peter's saying to these people? Verses 9 and 10, he says, You used to live in the darkness, but now God has called you into his light. Now you are God's people for his glory. Now you are holy. Verses 11 and 12. So now that you're holy, don't live in darkness anymore like you used to. Live different. Live holy. Live holy lives so that when those who do live in the darkness say terrible things about you, they will see how you live and they'll join with God too. I often wonder how this advice was accepted by those that Peter wrote to. I wonder if some of them said, Hey, Peter, you call this a plan? We're being persecuted here. We were thinking more along the lines of send lawyers, guns, and money. I wonder if others said, Peter, what we really need is, is power. We need military power or political influence, and we'll, we'll take the force of darkness. We'll fight back and take it by storm. And maybe Peter said to them, no, just live different. Live holy lives. Maybe some said, oh, Peter, you got the darkness and light thing right. Those Gentiles, those pagans, they're in the darkness, and we've got to separate ourselves from them because if, if, they don't, if we don't, they'll pollute us. And Peter said, no, live among them. Just live different from them. Live holy lives, and they'll see your good works and glorify God. Maybe somebody said to Peter, well, Peter, what we really need is a strategic institutional development advancement and replication program because there's always at least one MBA in every crowd. <laughs> and Peter said, no. We don't need another program. We need to live different and live holy lives. And finally, somebody might have said to Peter, Peter, where did you get this absolutely absurd church growth strategy? And Peter would say, I, I got it from Jesus. Don't you remember, guys, the Sermon on the Mount where he said to us, his followers, he said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so that, when they, may see your good, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Live different. Live holy. Men will see how you live. Let your light shine. And they will give glory to God. And that's exactly what these early believers did. They lived among the Romans. Among the pagans. Among the Gentiles. And they lived holy lives. Different from the others. In the world of the Roman Empire. Sexual perversion and promiscuity were so rampant. That the institution of marriage was all but obliterated. But the Christians were different. Heeding the advice of Jesus and Peter and Paul and the other apostles, they reserved their sexual expression for marriage between a man and a woman, and they avoided divorce. It led one pagan writer to say, These Christians share their tables, but not their spouses with strangers. In the Roman Empire, there was, of course, no knowledge of germ theory, and sanitary conditions were often deplorable, so occasionally epidemics would sweep through the empire. A guy by the name of uh, Howard Haggard writes that the ancient Romans considered helping a sick person a sign of personal weakness. And that, coupled with the fact that they were deathly afraid of getting whatever the epidemic was bringing, led to a standard operating procedure when an epidemic swept through a city whereby those who did not get sick got out of Dodge. They just bolted, leaving the sick and the dying to fend for themselves. Sorry, little Billy, gotta go. But the Christians were different. They served a saber who healed the sick and ministered to those who were hurting. So when an epidemic came through, the Christians, often in the endangerment of their own lives, and often at the expense of their own lives, they would minister to the sick and the dying. And those who survived were often so moved by the treatment they received from the Christians that they became Christians themselves. The Romans treated women deplorably. 
and women and widows were at the very bottom of that group. They were mistreated by the people as well as by the government. The Christians were different. They served a savior who had friends like Martha and Mary, who spoke to the woman at Sychar when even his own disciples wouldn't speak to her. They served a savior who treated women with dignity and respect. They served a savior who, when he was dying on the cross, said to his best friend John, take care of my mom, now she's your mom. So the Christians looked out for widows and they made sure they were safe and fed. In ancient Rome, life is cheap and children were often the most vulnerable. Abortion, infanticide, the outright killing of children, and child abandonment were only, not only accepted but common and perfectly legal. Babies, especially girl babies, were often abandoned in wild places to die from exposure. The Roman philosopher Seneca said in the first century, we drown children who, who are born weak or abnormal. But the Christians were different. Not only did they refuse to abort or kill or abandon their own children, they would go to wild places like the seashore and forests where the Romans had abandoned their children, usually girl babies, and they would gather up those babies and bring them and raise them themselves in their own homes with their own love and care. In thousands of ways, in thousands of different places across the Roman Empire, the Christians lived different among the Gentiles, among the pagans, sharing their lives, their homes, their food, and the gospel with their, Christ, with their pagan neighbors. And the results, the results were astonishing. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, estimates that when Peter wrote this letter in around A.D. 67, Christians comprised approximately 31,000th of 1% of the population of the Roman Empire. 31,000th of 1%. Less than 300 years later, in 350 A.D., Christians comprised 56% of the Roman Empire, almost 34 million people by virtue of living holy lives different from the Gentiles. A 40% annual return on almost 300 years. How'd you like that in your 401k? The results were phenomenal. And if you like a dose of practical theology, listen to this. Stark suggests that there were two huge, major reasons why this Christian population grew so dramatically in the ancient Roman Empire. First, when two separate epidemics swept through the empire, the Christians took such care of the sick and the dying that the response was absolutely tremendous. And second, because the Christians treated women with dignity and respect, because they refused to abort or abandon or kill their female infants, and because they went out to the places where the Romans had left theirs and gathered them up and raised them themselves, the Christians attained a level of women and females in their population that was far in excess of what would be normal. And so word got out across the heavily male Roman Empire that the Christians had women. But word also got out that these women were holy. And these holy women would not be given to men who were not holy. And those men got holy really, really fast. And the results were astounding. So if you ask me, do I think Christians can change the world? I say, yes, it's been done before. By living holy lives, Christians patiently and steadfastly change the face of an entire empire. And we could do it again. Now, I know some people would say, well, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. Now we're post-Christian, post-modern, post-church, post-whatever. 
church age has come and gone. The church has, has had its day. Now it's a cold, dark world again, and there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, we can still make believe, and we can still come to church. We can come to church and complain about how bad and how dark and how cold the world is and wait to get raptured. Then God will come and wipe out all the bad people, and we can be happy again. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he said to let your light shine before men so that they might see your good works. I don't think for a moment that Christians can't change the world again. And look, I understand. I know that we live in an American society that is increasingly secularized. I see that. I see that every day. But you know what else I see? I see a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I see people living different among their pagan neighbors, living holy lives so that those people can observe their good works and glorify God on the day he returns. Just take a look around here at Hope Chapel. Just take a look around. In a secular, immoral world, we have parents who strive diligently to raise Christian, moral children. And occasionally, occasionally those children even listen to them. In a society that is trying desperately to break down the institution of marriage that God ordained, we have people who seek not only to build up their own marriages, but help other people build up theirs. In a world, a society, where abortion is sadly prevalent, we have young families who welcome babies with open arms and great love. We have others in our midst who work diligently, diligently, to stem the tide of abortion and to minister to young pregnant women through places like First Concern and Compassion Pregnancy, and minister to those women in the name of Jesus Christ. We have people who from across the street, across the county, across the city, across the state, across the country, and across the globe, take in and adopt children to give them a better life. And they take those children into their homes and into their hearts with huge amounts of love and joy. We have people here who feed the hungry, help the homeless, make micro-seeds loans, teach children, pray for the sick, counsel the hurting, and live holy lives in countless other ways, all in the name of Jesus Christ and all for the glory of God. And that's just our church. Multiply that effect by tens of thousands of churches across the globe, and the transformational effect is incredible. From stopping hunger to assuring social justice, from providing health care to stopping human trafficking, Christians are sharing the good news and being the good news and changing the world as we speak. And make no mistake, the world is changing. Well, I was preparing this message. I feel like I'm working a drive through at Wendy's. <laughs> I was preparing this message. I came across a lot of numbers. And they're not hard and fast because there just aren't hard and fast numbers. But I came across some estimates that said there are 20 to 30,000 new Christian converts in China every day. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've read estimates that were close to it a number of times. 20 to 30,000 a day. Read estimates of up to 20,000 a day in Africa. 10 to 17,000 in Central and South America. The world is changing. God is changing it. Some have said that we, the boom in Christianity is creating a new great awakening. Don't be misled. No matter how dark this world may look, God is at work every moment of every day building his kingdom and using us, us, as his instruments to do it. 
God is not dead. He is not asleep. He is not weak. He is not indifferent. He does not need an economic bailout. His way is perfect. He stands alone. No one and nothing can oppose him. His plans stand firm forever. He is light and darkness will never prevail against that light. He will build his church one soul at a time. He's told us that the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he has given us the incredible privilege of being his light bearers and his world changers all to his glory. So I have one request for you this morning, whether it's on the song after this message or sometime this week, draw close to God and ask him what you can do to live different, live holy among your neighbors, among your friends, among your schoolmates, among your classmates and among your workmates, that they may see your good works and give glory to God and inquire of God also what we can do as here at Hope Chapel, it's a community of believers to live different, to live holy among those in darkness so that they may see our good works and give glory to God and that we can be his world changers. I appreciate you listening to me this morning and I thank you. Let's pray. Father, in our hearts, we know that you are all-powerful. You make things happen in your time and you call upon us to act and to be your light. And we pray, Lord, that we will be the light of the world to reflect the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand how, in the most intimate detail, we can do your will to bring light to a dark and hurting world. We ask this, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.